Hello, welcome to Time of My Life with Lawrence Mazafari. That's me. I'm a journalist and presenter and podcaster from London. And this podcast is a fun and thoughtful series of interviews where I speak to remarkable elders with fascinating lives, all to capture their wisdom, anecdotes, and answer some of life's biggest questions from the people who have already lived it, including what's the meaning of life? Yep, I've come for the biggies. Today's episode is with George Takai, who you might know better as Sulu from Star Trek. He's an LGBTQ rights campaigner, sci-fi legend, and just all-round wonderful man. George was right at the top of my interview wish list when I started planning this podcast, and especially so after hearing him on David Tennant's. I hope you enjoy, and of course, live long and prosper. I'm George Takei, and this is Time of My Life with Lawrence Mazafari. Hello, George. It is so lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on this podcast. How are you doing today? You all good? I'm doing fine, and it's a joy to be talking with you. Thank you so much. Um, so, George, I know that you're playing Elder Panda in the new CBB uh, series called Love Monster. Um, so for those that don't know, it's a wise panda that's kind of passing on life lessons to preschoolers. Um, so it's not all this dissimilar to this podcast, actually, because we're trying to pass on pearls of wisdom to lots of people. So a nice, nice little link there. But I wondered, what's the best advice that you've ever been given, do you think, uh, that's kind of stuck with you over the years? The best advice that shaped me to who I am. Uh, I grew up uh, in a U.S. concentration camp, or two of them, as a matter of fact, uh, because we happened to look just like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. We're American citizens of Japanese ancestry. I was born here in Los Angeles, and my mother was born in Sacramento, California, which is a part of the U.S., and my father was a San Franciscan which I'm sure everyone knows is a part of the, the United States on the Pacific coast. Uh, and yet, simply because we happened to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor, we were put into barbed wire prison camps, surrounded by barbed wire fences, tall sentry towers with machine guns pointed at us, and uh, searchlights at night. Uh, when I made the night runs from our barrack to the latrine, searchlights followed me. As a five-year-old kid, I thought it was nice that they lit the way for me to pee. <laughs> Very thoughtful of them. But for my parents, of course, it was an invasive, humiliating, degrading uh, light. So I grew up in that atmosphere. And when I became a teenager, I wanted to understand more of my childhood. Uh, because my memory is that of a five-year-old kid to eight years old. And there was, I knew, I knew that my parents suffered very much and I wanted to understand it. And my father told me that our government is a people's democracy and therein lies both the strength and the weakness of our democracy. Look at the history books and all that uh, the people have the capacity to accomplish great things. The ideals that you read in civics books, rule of law, 
due process, equal justice under the law. That's our ideal. But people are also fallible human beings. They make mistakes. And so in a people's democracy, we have a very difficult form of democracy where the people who are have the capacity to do great things but are also people that make mistakes are the government. We have to participate in the, that government, a participatory democracy. And we have to take responsibility to the extent that we can. And my father urged both me and my brother to be active in student government. And then uh, I kept challenging them. Why were we in prison then when it's supposed to be our government? And he said, well, we weren't participants in it. And uh, it's got to work with the participa participation of as many people as possible. And I kept challenging him, but it's not working. Look at the African-Americans. This is back in the 50s. Uh, they're demonstrating for justice, e equality, and they are attacked by law enforcement officers with fire hoses and attack dogs. That's not justice. And my father said, that's why we have to participate. And because I kept challenging him, he said, let me show you how it's got to work. And he, he drove me downtown to the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters. He was the governor of uh, Illinois at that time. He was a great speaker, an inspiring speaker, and he was a wise man. And he said, uh, he put me in that uh, environment where I was together with other passionate people dedicated to getting this great man uh, elected president. And I heard his speeches on the radio and he was inspiring and I understood. And so that discussion uh, was what uh, uh, shaped me into the activist that I am, not only in electoral politics, but in uh, social justice campaigns. And I remember one of the quotes from uh, Adlai Stevenson at that time. He said, in America, anyone can become president. That's the risk we take. And I, I understand the, the wisdom of that today in our America. <laughs> I, could, I could completely, completely imagine. We took a big risk and look what's happening to our, our country. Um, thank you so much for that. I, I completely understand that uh, advice from your dad. I think it definitely rings, rings true today. And I'm so, so sorry to hear what you experienced as a child in your family as well. Um, this was one thing I kind of wanted to ask you about, because I know you're working on a, a graphic memoir about your experiences, aren't you? Yes, it's called They Called Us Enemy. This country went into uh, war hysteria, not unlike the kind of uh, hysteria that we're, we've got in this country, the United States right now. We look just like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And that hysteria was like, uh, what, for example, when 9-11 happened, uh, in nine, uh, 2001, when uh, the two twin towers of uh, New York were uh, destroyed by uh, terrorists. 
that kind of hysteria exists existed back then and every governmental body legislative body from the local to all the way to the uh, the federal in washington dc city council to state legislatures to the united states congress just thundered with words of hate that we were spies we were uh, saboteurs we were fifth columns when there had no evidence of that fact and but you know the, the, uh, that sweeping characterization and all Japanese Americans were, uh, were categorized as enemy alien that's where the title of my book comes from but I wasn't an enemy I was a five year old kid and I wasn't an alien I was an American born in Los Angeles of American-born parents. And yet, I mean, it, the, that irrationality what, was what put 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast into barbed wire concentration camps. Most people uh, outside of America don't know or didn't know that we had concentration camps for American citizens in America during the Second World War. As uh, a son of my father who uh, shared that wisdom with me, I became an activist. He's to blame. That's that's <laughs> a risk we take in a people's democracy. I think we're I think we're all very thankful to have you as an activist, George. You've done some wonderful things in your time. And um, I wondered from from the book, what would you like people to take away? away from reading it do you think especially about about the world today is there any lessons you you like them to learn do you think well again i i think it's what my uh, father taught me that we have to participate mm. in a participatory government and he said it's not just bottom line just voting you have to know uh intelligently what you're voting on do your homework and then but that's the, the, the first step to vote and know what you're voting on. But then beyond that, good citizenship means you uh, volunteer, as he took me down to Adlai Stevenson's headquarters. And the next uh, step is uh, you will, you'll get to know the people that you elect to be our representatives, and they may ask you to serve on public commissions or boards and to be willing to take on those responsibilities. It may be just on the neighborhood uh, level, a neighborhood council, but they, they may ask you to serve on a, a, a state commission or on a federal commission. And I've had those opportunities. I have served on boards and commissions. And also, you know, they, they don't have to be governmental uh, boards. They can be uh, uh, charitable, charitable uh, association boards, but to participate in the government. And ultimately, uh, if it comes to that and you're given that opportunity to offer yourself for consideration for elective office, that's a participatory democracy. And you have to be, if you're blessed with those opportunities, then you have to take on that. He said, the easiest form of government 
is a dictatorship. You just leave it up to the man and let him do it for you as well as to you. You just sit back. The hardest form of government is a people's democracy because we have to take on the responsibilities at every level and to be informed, to do your homework, to take on each responsibility at each level that you are blessed to participate in. Absolutely. And I kind of the phrase that comes to mind for me is like, uh, uh, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. You know, I think everybody does have that responsibility to, to participate. I wondered whether, you know, in, in a sense, it seems like people have become so much more politically charged in the last few years with the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had Brexit in the UK, obviously, like all the controversy around Trump in the US. I wondered, through your life and through your experiences, do you think the world is changing for the better? Or in what, in what way do you feel it's changing? We are tribal creatures. And so throughout history, we've had wars because we're fallible human beings. And they... they take on different shapes, different personalities, different issues. But, you know, religion was the battle cry uh, in ancient times. People of faith fought each other, trying to impose their faith on the others. And now today it's ideology. We're trying to impose one ideology on another group. And so we keep repeating history but it's in di different shapes and forms. Now we have technology available. Uh, during the Second World War, they had uh, advances made in a horrible way of killing other people, nuclear bombs. Now we have other forms of technology, subversion by using this amazing te technology of communication that we have and that can be enormously destructive if nefarious minds get uh, to work on it. So it takes different forms, different shapes, and has different effects. Uh, we keep improving with knowledge of science, with knowledge of technology, but the core animal, the human animal, can we really get to the point where we get that animal to understand the pointlessness of killing each other. I mean, the Second World War, we fought uh, Germany and Japan and Italy in Europe. Germany and Japan are two of our most important and closest allies today. We found new enemies to fight over. We keep repeating but the technology and the weapons and the ideas and the way we fight each other is different. But it's the same evil, human uh, uh, fallibility. You, you sort of touch on technology and I've, uh, I've read a stat that you're perhaps one of the most influential people on Facebook because you have this phenomenal outreach on social media with, with all sorts of like political commentary and everything to videos and, and memes and things like that. I wondered, if you could tell us a bit about how did that come about? How did you get so in, engaged with social media? Do you work with a team? Like, how does it all come together? I, I took my father's lesson, but my passion is the theater, acting. And I believe 
in wedding all aspects of myself in that idea of con connecting with uh, some kind of rationale with people. When I first uh, started speaking God on the imprisonment of uh, Japanese Americans during the Second World War, uh, I uh, made speeches. I spoke to groups. I went to universities and spoke uh, there. I wrote uh, uh, op-ed pieces uh, for newspapers. And I write books. Uh, I, I wrote an autobiography, which was about, uh, uh, the first third was about my childhood imprisonment, but the uh, other uh, two thirds is about my acting career, because that's a part of, and I used that and, com and, and merged it because it's organic. I used my career and whatever uh, platform my careers offered me, we developed uh, a Broadway musical of all things on the internment of Japanese Americans. Uh, I, uh, it's called Allegiance. And uh, we uh, did it on Broadway. We, uh, before Broadway, we did it in San Diego at the highly respected uh, uh, regional theater, the Old Globe Theater. And we still hold the record for the biggest uh, box office in the Old Globe's history. And it's been oh, around amazing. for over 80 years. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. We're very proud of that. But, you know, we raised the awareness uh, of uh, the internment experience, but not just the awareness. We humanize that story. It's not just uh, an academic uh, uh, piece for, uh, for a newspaper or a, a book uh, examining it uh, historically. Uh, in uh, 1941, this happened in 1942 and 1945. And in 1988, the President of the United States apologized for that uh, uh, unjust incarceration and paid a $20,000 uh, redress for those that were still alive at that point. My father was, uh, was the one in our family that suffered the most, the pain and the anguish and the rage. And he passed without ever knowing that there was gonna be that apology. He passed nine years before uh, Ronald Reagan apologized. So I believe in using everything that I have, including uh, Broadway musicals. And in order to promote the Broadway musical, because that was a high risk business, and I wanted to build an audience for it, uh, in the, um, I, well, by, it was back in the 90s that I discovered uh, so, uh, social media. And at that time, uh, I had a large uh, Star Trek following, and I was uh, communicating with the fans via a blog, a, a monthly blog that, that I wrote summarizing all of the Star Trek experiences I had, the conventions I went to, some wonderful uh, fan who shared something wonderful uh, with me, or, you know, all the anecdotes. And <clears throat> when we started developing Allegiance, I thought, what a wonderful way to uh, uh, build an audience for Allegiance, for Broadway. Uh, but, you know, that, at that time, my audience was confined to just uh, Star Trek fans. I needed to build it beyond that. And uh, so I started speaking out on uh, uh, another issue I cared very much about, uh, uh, equality for LGBT people. And, uh, and when you're too pontificating, it doesn't reach too many people. 
And by trial and error, I discovered that humor is <laughs> something that goes viral. Yeah. Uh, there was a basketball player who um, made the uh, statement, I hate gay people. I, I'll have nothing to do with gay people. And I, 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 I thought I'd counter that by saying, we love gay, I mean, we love basketball players. Uh, this was an African-American ba basketball player who made that statement. I said, we love basketball uh, players. We love sweaty athletes. <laughs> <laughs> we love the muscles, you know, and I, there was a photo of this uh, basketball player and I ran my hands over his calves, <laughs> nice calves and thighs. And then I, my hand went elsewhere, but I didn't name it, you know? And so I sensually seduced that photo, <laughs> a photograph. And I said, we love sweaty basketball players. And I'll tell you, someday when you least expect it, I'll have sex with you. And that went viral. And it, it humiliated that guy, you know. And, he, and it took months, but finally he apologized. And he said, I'll work with the uh, uh, gay community. I apologize for my saying I hate you. You counter hate with love. You counter it with humor. <laughs> I still have not had sex with him yet. <laughs> But he's been converted already. There's still time, I guess. There's still time. <laughs> he's oh, getting dude. older, and I'm getting older. <laughs> but you um, know, and and so I use humor in my uh, in my uh, uh, equality uh, campaign, and so with uh, uh, that, I had the LGBT community, and then I started talking about the my uh, childhood uh, imprisonment and its injustice and the fact that Ronald Reagan, a popular movie star who became a very popular conservative president. And uh, uh, I introduced the fact that we are developing a Broadway musical on it. And uh, we did very well. As a matter of fact, when we were on Broadway, uh, we had the uh, 2016 presidential campaign going. And one Republican candidate made some outrageous statements about uh, Muslims. He said, when I get into office, I will pass a Muslim travel ban. All Muslims won't be able to come to the United States because they're all potential terrorists. And that, that thinking immediately reminded me of how we were char characterized, that sweeping statement made by every politician, that we were potential spies, saboteurs, and fifth columnists. And this, this candidate for the presidency is saying that all Muslims are potential terrorists, which is a lie. It's not true. And so he, he needed to know something about American history that he clearly was ignorant on, the imprisonment of American citizens simply because of our race because how we look. And so I extended, and in the, I, I'd work with uh, Trump uh, on uh, a Celebrity Apprentice. 
I'm one. I'm one of those that can. I can claim that I was fired by Donald Trump, <laughs> <laughs> and I sent him a personal invitation as my guest to come see Allegiance because uh, you will learn something from, the, and you you'll enjoy a, a Broadway musical, wonderful songs, wonderful production numbers, but there's a lot about American history that you can learn from. Did he come along? Well, I, I expanded on that invitation by going on every morning talk show, afternoon talk show, and evening, late night talk show, telling people about my invitation to Donald Trump. He never showed. However, we saved one aisle seat in the stalls, a very uh, highly trafficked, uh, I think about the 10th row uh, on, the, on the aisle. We put a great big sign there saying, this seat reserved for Mr. Donald Trump. And during intermission, a line formed next to that seat up the aisle. <laughs> and they would all hunker down with their phones and get uh, their Selfies selfie with taken <laughs> with, with that sign. And they, they would uh, 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 put it on their uh, uh, social media. And we sold a lot of tickets for, for, <laughs> with that sign there. But so we were trying to use every medium possible media uh, to, to uh, convey a message with humor sometimes, sometimes scolding, and other times uh, uh, enticing and <laughs> seductive. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a really powerful uh, lesson for everyone to learn, I think. You know, come at, come at life with humor and, and fight hate with love. I think we could all learn a lot from that. I wanted to and, ask... And seduction. And seduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask George, I mean, you've got an incredible voice. Like I could listen to you read, read the phone, <laughs> I've got to say. Uh, hearing you say my name earlier on was was a was a right thrill. People pay me for this. They do, yeah. I should hear I, my I, voice. I'll send my it's checks in the post. It's a hint. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask. Uh, you, you obviously played uh, the character in Love Monster, Order Panda, and I know you've played yourself in lots of different TV shows. I wondered what's the difference between the kind of fictional George Takei that that is portrayed in television and the and the real McCoy. What are the difference between the two? It's same person. They and before I was playing a part. Uh, nowadays I do uh, entertainment shows as a character named George Takei. <laughs> it's a character. It's not really me. Though I'm, re I'm I've memorized lines on a script, but uh, I try to find something in me that's genuine and try to put it in the, uh, into that whatever uh, character I'm playing, whether it's. Uh, and uh, the Big Bang Theory or Will and Grace. <laughs> it's gay George Takei, and it's that part of me that they want. So I give them that with a little tongue in cheek. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Obviously, I can't speak to you without mentioning Star Trek, and you've already touched on it earlier on. Um, Patrick Stewart made a comeback into the Amazon Prime TV show, Picard. There's talk of more Star Trek movies. I think it's been rumors of maybe Quentin Tarantino doing film. I wondered whether you would ever consider returning to Sulu in live action, and what would you what would you see that looking like if you could? Well, I'm always considering interesting opportunities, but it's not my considering that makes it happen. It's uh, 
they're inviting me to. <laughs> and that invitation has not been extended yet. I've dropped a lot of hints. <laughs> I, I'm an activist, not only in the political arena or social justice arena, I'm an activist for my career. And you might have noticed that uh, Lieutenant Sulu, he began as a lieutenant, but in the sixth Star Trek feature film, there he is in the center seat of a starship much bigger than the Enterprise, much more powerful than the Enterprise. And there he is in that center seat, confidently sipping a cup of hot green tea, lots of antioxidants. And <laughs> he's the uh, core uh, force in that uh, movie. But that happened because I did a little advocacy all, all through the TV years and all through the uh, feature film years. I said the Starfleet is, is a meritocracy. And each time, you know, a new feature film is being made, our titles are changing. I started as a lieutenant, and then I became lieutenant commander, and then I became a commander. All these uh, advances in title, but there I am at the same old helm console, punching those lines saying, aye, aye, sir, warp three. I said, no, this is not a meritocracy. I'm not advancing in responsibility and, and in duties. That should be reflected. And I kept pounding that into the writers. Uh, the directors changed, but I did uh, lobby the, the directors too. And also Gene Roddenberry, our creative producer. And finally, by the sixth, uh, sixth one, there I was. It happened. The script arrived. I opened the, the script, and on the first page, Captain Sulu. <laughs> and that is a Captain Sulu movie. It begins with them, and the pounding drama begins. Praxis explodes. You know, Star Trek uh, talks in metaphors, and what we did in, in all the good Star Trek uh, movies and episodes. Uh, the stories were metaphors of what's happening uh, at that time. We dealt with the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the hippie movement in the television series, and with Star Trek VI, the un, uh, undiscovered country. We were dealing with Chernobyl and the crumbling of the Soviet Union. Uh, or in uh, Star Trek VI, it's uh, the Klingon Empire. They had that, uh, that power uh, center, uh, Praxis, and it explodes. That's Chernobyl. And it begins with that. And uh, the Klingon Empire uh, uh, realizes they need to have a rapprochement with Starfleet. And Gorbachev, uh, the Klingon ambassador comes and, and and we find that the enemy is really within us. You've worked with so many amazing names in your career. Like I was looking through a few before the interview, like Frank Sinatra, Richard Burton, Leonard Nimoy. I wondered if you have uh, a, a person that you worked with that was especially like special to you or someone that really stuck with you at all. There are many that have stuck with me. I remember... My first feature film was with Richard Burton, uh, Ice Palace, uh, a novel written by Edna Ferber, who, who wrote these epic no uh, novels about uh, 
a state in the United States. The giant was about Texas. Centennial was about Colorado. And Ice Palace was obviously Alaska. And it's uh, this rugged American frontiersman played by Robert Ryan who goes to Alaska. And this immigrant from England played by Richard Burton who goes to work in a fish cannery in Alaska. And my role was that of uh, an immigrant from China working in that same fish cannery as uh, the cannery that Richard Burton was working at. And uh, all my scenes were with uh, Richard Burton and which filmed on location in, uh, in Alaska. And I got to, I mean, we, it was, I was still a student, a theater student at UCLA. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity, this theater student and this legendary Shakespearean actor from England. Uh, and I'm working one-on-one -on -one with, uh, with him. It was such a thrilling exp experience, but even more exciting was the set-side chit-chat while we wait for the set, the set to be prepared. And so there I am sitting next to uh, Richard Burton, full of questions. And as it turned out, Richard loved talking about himself. So we were a good fit. And uh, I, I started out calling him Mr. Burton, uh, of course. But he um, said, I was playing a character named Wang. He said, uh, call me Richard. We're going to be together for a long time now. We were there for for uh, two weeks and then back at the studio for another uh, month and a half. And he said, uh, call me Richard. Uh, as you insist on calling me Mr. Burton, I shall call you Mr. Wang. <laughs> and I, so I sh shifted to calling him Richard. And he was a fascinating man. For, did you know that English was not Richard Burton's first language? Oh, really? He's Welsh. <laughs> and the son, I think he was like the uh, 15th or 16th uh, child of this Welsh coal miner. And, and he grew up with Welsh and he had to learn English. And he was raised by his oldest sister because his mother was very sickly. I, she would be, you know, <laughs> can you imagine? Have, I think she had 17 children altogether. Wow. And uh, any human being would be sick, <laughs> sick sickly <laughs> after so many uh, births. Um, but he was a fascinating man. And, absolutely. you know, that stentorian voice speaking the king's English, and it was an acquired language. Amazing. Absolutely and incredible. this was during his pre-Elizabethan period. You know the Elizabeth I mean. I do, I do. <laughs> I met him before her. <laughs> um, I've got so much I, I want to ask you, Jules. I've a few more I want to speed through while I've got time with you. Um, I'm a big lover of anecdotes, and this kind of podcast is celebrating people's life stories and wisdom and stuff. Um, someone once said to me that the idea in life is to be the person around the table with the best anecdotes to tell. I wonder if you have... <laughs> one anecdote that i've been sharing them with i know you. <laughs> you're an endless you're an endless book of them i wonder if there's if you have a very favorite one that you like to roll out at dinner tables and parties i am 83 years old <laughs> i have lived a lot of life 
<laughs> and I have told many anecdotes. As you can tell, I'm garrulous. <laughs> and no, I have no favorite. I just have one after another that happens spontaneously. <laughs> I know that's not the answer you want. That's okay. I've got a bag full of them. <laughs> but none that I would call my favorite. You've obviously achieved so much in your life. Is there something that's, you know, what's still on your to-do list uh, to get to, to, to happen one day, do you think? I don't believe in to-do lists. No, that's a really People interesting. keep leaving things off, you know. I, I want to do that and I'll wait until I retire. I'll do that when uh, uh, I have X amount of dollars in my bank account. I believe in doing what I want to do. Uh, travel. I, I, I've traveled the world and those are the, I've, I've visited the places and learned about uh, pl uh, places and people uh, while I can still do it because so many people who have to-do lists, when the time comes to do it, they can't do it the way they imagine themselves doing it. They can't go on that bicycling trip uh, uh, through Europe. I bicycled from uh, Nice to Monaco thinking on the map oh that's not that far i was i was a long distance runner so uh bicycling was another one of my favorites on the map it looks close nice monaco i had no idea it was all uphill <laughs> <laughs> you live and learn and so i didn't put that on uh, on my to-do list because i it would be impossible now but i did it and so that's uh done uh, people who keep putting it off for that time to read some big war and peace book. I don't believe in to, uh, to do this. I believe in doing that at that time when you can still enjoy it thoroughly and appreciate it fully. Absolutely. I think it's a really healthy attitude for everyone to take away. Is there a, you mentioned a bit about travel. Is there somewhere that you've traveled to in your life you think everyone should visit or go and see? Well, I'm an Anglophile. My, okay. I'm the son of an Anglophile. <laughs> uh, I was born in 1937, the year that George VI was crowned. My father knew all the kings and queens in order, and he thought it was propitious that his son would be, the first son would be born right before the crowning of a king, and hence my name. When my brother was born, he was round and fat and roly-poly and very demanding. Guess what my brother's name is? Henry VIII. No, no eight there. <laughs> Just Henry. He, his name is Henry. And his wife is still his, his first wife. Okay, he didn't get Henry to eight wives, at so. six. <laughs> uh, and her head is very comfortably attached to her shoulders. <laughs> glad to hear it. Very glad to hear it. One thing I really, really wanted to touch on as well, while we still got time, is uh, kind of your take on what the meaning of life is. So it's quite a big question to be asking you, it's quite a big <laughs> question to be asking anybody, but I kind of want to talk to everybody in this podcast about what is the meaning of life to them. Obviously, in Love Monster, you're playing a character which is delivering, uh, you know, anecdotes and life wisdom to, to preschoolers. But from your perspective, what do you think? Like my philosophy with the uh, uh, um, bucket lists, uh, I think life is meant to be lived fully. 
and uh, uh, you know, one's life is shaped by the forces on you. And I have been shaped by my father, uh, other people that uh, have inspired me, uh, Adlai Stevenson, uh, John Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln. He was the president before uh, uh, I, I was born. It's important that we live fully and try to be the best we can with what, with what we have and what we are. I mean, there's a lot of things that I can't do. I mean, I, I serve on many boards, uh, uh, charitable boards, and I want to be even more generous, but I have certain limitations, financial limitations. So, you know, we live within our constraints, but try to live within that constraint as fully as you can. And, you know, if, if it's travel or if it's uh, dishes that you haven't eaten at that legendary restaurant that's fabled for being a fabulous restaurant, well, you save up for it and you do it. Not when I've retired or when I'm a billionaire, you know, you, you, you just plan to do what you want to do or prepare yourself to do what you would like to do and do it. Live life fully and live life intelligently and live life as generously as you can. I think that's a beautiful philosophy, George. I thought you might say live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, thank you for giving that me that cue. And, <laughs> and the Vulcan greeting serves as a wonderful, friendly social distancing gesture as well. That's a very good point. I'll have to roll that one. I out. use it all the time. <laughs> Much better live than long an elbow, and prosper. I think. <laughs> oh, I think that's an ungainly gesture. Isn't it? <laughs> It's so, so much uh, better, more elegant, more and more friendly. Brilliant. Well, there's nothing, nothing else to say to you, George, apart from live long and prosper, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for joining me on uh, Time of My Life, and, and thank you again. Take care, my friend. It's been, uh, it's been my pleasure. Live long and prosper. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been a long long time coming and finally I'm so glad to have it out in the world at one stage I thought it might never happen but I'm really really glad to get there I'm certainly missing the slick production team from behind the scenes and obsessed with Peaky Blinders um, but yeah bear with me while I find my way through the podcasting world in terms of editing myself if you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful or entertaining I would massively appreciate if you could leave me a positive review on your podcast provider of choice because I know it really does help in terms of the rankings and helping other people discover it or maybe you might want to share it with your friends or family or someone you think might benefit from it or enjoy it if you want to stay in touch with me about future episodes of the podcast or people you'd love to hear interviewed, then you can find me on Instagram at Lawrence Mozafari or on Twitter with at Lawrence underscore Moza, or you can find my Facebook page if you search for Lawrence Mozafari Journalist. My incredible intro music and backing track, which you can hear right now, is made by a very good friend of mine, Joshua Ferreira. He's a multi-instrumentalist and music producer, and he's in a very good folk cover band too, and they're called The Chaps. Um, they use live instruments to play the biggest dance UK garage and club classics you've ever heard. And once you've heard uh, an Ibiza anthem mixed in as a, in a folk remix, trust me, you can never go back. They're such a good laugh to watch live. 
You can hear more of Josh's music by searching for Joshua Ferreira Music on SoundCloud or check out thechapsband.com. And if you'd like to support the production of this podcast, please head to co-fi.com slash Lawrence Mozafari. That's ko-fi.com slash Lawrence Mozafari. Thanks again. Thank you so, so much for listening. Stay safe and be lucky. How was my pronunciation of your surname? It was great. It was really, really good. Yeah. Uh, Italian, is it? Uh, It's not. It's it's Iranian, actually. Iranian. Ah, it sounds Italian. I get that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I get that. I just came back from Italy, had lots of people speaking Italian to me. I could understand a word. (laughs)